Coming to you from the Morningstar Mission sponsored studio, this is Carl and Crew Mornings. Helping you take your next step with Jesus. That's what we're all about here, Allie. Do you, have you ever counted your steps? Have you ever worn a, some sort of a tracker? It's funny that you say, oh, steps. I thought you were meaning steps with Jesus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Do you still have your step tracker? Oh, I do. And uh, my daughter wears one too, so she's always uh, trying to compete with me. That's which great. It's never even a competition. Just, Mom, how, how are your steps doing? Oh, I'm somewhere around uh, 3,400. I have 11,000. <laughs> it's always way more. So well, mom doesn't take nearly as many steps in a day as my active 13-year-old. All we need you to take today is one giant step. Just one. And we've got some content that will help you do that. New to the show? Stick around for a while. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. Special guest with me right now, I call him the Gospel Man. He's the 10th president of Moody Bible Institute, founding pastor of New Life Community Churches across Chicagoland, by the way, newlifechicago.org. If you're looking for a church, there might be one of these near you, newlifechicago.org, pastor and Dr. Mark Job. How you doing, young man? I'm doing great. It's the end of the year. We're uh, looking forward <laughs> to uh, celebrating the birth of Jesus the Christ in a massive way and excited to see what God will bring in in this new year. Yeah, that's great. Year-end giving, there's a lot of talk about this, but the reality is, let's just break it down. There are some practical stewardship advantages to making year-end gifts, and there's spiritual impact that can be made. Give an appeal for Moody Bible Institute, Mark. For many ministries and non-for-profits, December is the most crucial year in their budget. Moody is no different. December is a critical year because a lot of people at the end of the year decide to give a year in donation. By the way, I love that about America. This is true not only of Christians, but non-Christians alike that we tend to be a, a generous country. And so the end of year is a big time for all of us. And Carl, I, I believe that the Bible says that wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so I think that our money follows our heart. There's no a lot of great, important causes out there. But you know what unites what we call Moody Bible Institute? Moody Radio has programming across the nation, in Africa, other places. Moody Publishing, 3.5 million books a year. Today in the Word, almost a million subscribers to that. We have our school. We have our aviation. What unites all this is at Moody is the priority of the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel. Yeah. We prepare people to live on mission, but what has started this ministry 137 years ago is the gospel of Jesus Christ, started by an evangelist. So I think there's no higher cause to give to than the advancement of the gospel. Amen. Yeah. And so your treasure goes to where your heart is at. If your heart is in the gospel, if your heart is in the good news, evangelism, seeing people come to Christ, knowing the good news of Jesus, proclamation, then I, I'm hard-pressed to think of a better place to give for the priority of the gospel than Moody Bible Institute. And so I unabashedly, unashamedly appeal to you at the end of the year, 
Would you give a year in gift to Moody Bible Institute? We will squeeze all we can out of it to let people know about Jesus. If you don't believe in the gospel, if that's not a high priority, if that's not something that you say I'm committed to, then do not give to Moody because we will use your money for the purposes of the gospel. <laughs> that's so exactly just warning you in right. advance. Just warning you in advance. We know where this cheddar is going. Oh, that's great. Mark Job, I love you, brother. You're a good man man. And uh, thanks for soldiering shoulder to shoulder with all of us here, not being above anyone, but just uh, being a good servant leader. We love you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Love you guys too, Carl and crew. Thank you again for what you guys do every single morning and wake up at those I should I want crazy to say hours, godly, but maybe they're <laughs> no, godly they're godly hours, hours. <laughs> godly hours in the morning to help minister to a lot of people. Hey, have a great December. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Listen, if you want to give this end of year gift, we'd love for you to be a part. Text give to 312-274-9624. Get a link. Let's go, Boom Crew. Let's do it. Let's have a revival of gospel and fund it in a big way. Text GIVE to 312-274-9624. New to the show? Stick around for a while. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. Okay, we're going to the phone lines. Pastor Lutzer is with us here today. And uh, Allie, you've got a question teed up. Yeah, this came in from somebody who said, Pastor Lutzer, I remember a couple years ago, you said you were going to preach on the fear of the Lord. So they're asking you to make good on that. Maybe not a full sermon right now, Pastor, but maybe a quicker answer. Well, isn't that interesting? I'm sure that I made that promise. And you know, four or five years ago, I preached the graduation address for Moody Bible Institute, and I preached on the fear of the Lord. Hmm. So I did make good on my promise. There you go. go. There you go. (laughs) Here's the point. We have taken the word fear and we have so denuded it that it just means reverence. Yes. When the Bible says very clearly, I'm thinking, for example, even of 1 Peter, where it says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of your life and so forth, when actually... You know, it says this, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And he's talking even in the context of Christians. Now, it's true, we don't have to cower before the Lord in fear, in the sense that we are covered with the blood of Christ. Legally, we are perfect and all. But this idea that God is endlessly tolerant with his own people because he does love us, and that there should be no fear of disobedience. You see, that's part of the previous discussion we had just a moment ago, where the gospel is so uh, watered down that it's come to Jesus, say this prayer, and actually it's all much deeper than that, but also the fear of the Lord. You know, what does the Bible say? Our God is a consuming fire. And therefore, what we need to do is to rethink our entire view of God. He is not the God that oftentimes is uh, portrayed. You know, The Economist, which is a very uh, influential magazine, a year ago had an article entitled, Nearer My God to Me. And it talked about how God is constantly changing. And that instead of saying, you know, 
may it be on earth as it is in heaven, we should reverse that and we should say, as it is on earth, so let it be in heaven. Well, in I other words, we create not. God. <laughs> That's a scary Now, that thought. is just so absurd. I know that no evangelical would go there. But we have the same kind of idea that we want to shape God according to our liking. And what we have to do is to bow in reverence and fear, because God severely disciplines his own children who walk away. In fear, uh, Peter says, conduct yourselves. And that's not only the place where it mentions fear in the New Testament. Most people say, well, yeah, the Old Testament, but not the New. Yes, in the New as well. Yeah. And I think we should fear disobedience. You know, I was given a message uh, Sunday out of Hebrews 4, and uh, the writer of Hebrews calls us to be terrified that we might not enter the rest of Jesus Christ. In Wolverton Zuck, I was looking at some of their commentary, and they they said that it's a—it um, almost gets me crying here, guys. They said that a, a, a healthy fear of judgment will drive us into the arms of grace— Quick comment on that, Pastor. It really helps our, our robustness and our dependence on God, does it not? It really does. And, you know, people may come to God with uh, mixed motives. I often think of the prodigal son. He came home not because he loved his father, but because he was hungry. Yeah. And sometimes it is those trials of life that really drive us to Christ, and God uses those to drive us to himself. So you're absolutely right that the fear of judgment. Now, I wrote a book on the judgment seat of Christ. It's entitled Your Eternal Reward. And I have to say that there are many theologians who disagree with me, and I acknowledge that in the book. But I take the judgment seat of Christ very seriously. Are you talking the, the Bema seat or the great white throne? No, no, the Bema seat. Okay. The great white throne is for unbelievers right. only. That's Revelation chapter 19 and 20. But I'm talking about the fact that we will stand. It, this is what it says, Second Second Corinthians 5.10. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. So this idea that because we are perfect in Christ, that we're going to sail through. By the way, I preached on that at a conference, and the person who followed me, the pastor, totally disagreed. And he said, the worst we will get at the judgment seat, he said, is like being hit on the wrist with a wet noodle. I think that the loss of rewards and the lack of thank you from Jesus is going to be very severe. Now, of course, once we enter into eternity, everyone is going to bring glory to God. It's like a chandelier where some people will be brighter than others because the Bible says, you know, if you're faithful, you're given more responsibility. Everybody happy, everybody giving praise to God. But the way we live is very important. And, you know, the older I get, the closer I am to the Bema. Yeah. The more I ask God that I will live every day with the Bema in mind. 
Yeah. Quick question on that one, Pastor. It, there is a dilution of the Bema Seat judgment. That's where Christians will be called to account. We know that there will be sadness there because some were going to shrink back at his coming. So that's in play. How long might that Bema experience be? We don't have specificity, but it's enough to give us a quaking in our boots. You know, we don't know how long it's going to be, and we also don't know how Jesus is able to evaluate each person, millions, over a period of time. What we do know is that after the Bema, you, of course, have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and at that point, we all go to the Mount of Olives, and we come back with Christ, and it says that those, this is Revelation 19, I believe, that those who descend are arrayed in white garments. They come after him. And so eternity is going to be okay. But I remember talking to a man who said, I'm a carnal Christian. And as long as I get into heaven, even if I can sit in the back seat, the back row, and if I have a little shack, I'll be happy. Isn't that interesting? But he's the kind of person who is not satisfied with a little shack on earth. But he thinks he's going to be happy with a little shack in heaven. But I said, what if you think of it this way? The reason you're in the back row, to use your illustration, is because you have disappointed Jesus. Doesn't that give you some sadness that you're living your life for yourself? That's convicting and and spot on biblically. Whether it's number one or 100, take that step with Jesus today. You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. Great question came in here, Pastor. It's somewhat technical, but it's got some implications. The city of David often referred to when it was... um, Uh, Zion was renamed City of David, but in Luke 2, it says Bethlehem is called the City of David. What say you, Pastor? Well, both are really the City of David. For this reason, Bethlehem is spoken of in the Bible as the place where David was born. That's where he was anointed. So it became attached to his name. Later on, when Jerusalem was conquered, of course, under David, then it became known as the City of David. So because David is rather famous, guess what? He had more than one city. (laughs) That's that's the truth. And it's the lineage that we um, obviously find that Jesus, the son of God, is born. Okay, uh, let's get some more here. We've got, boy, it gets a, this is a tricky one. And this is great because this is right up the pastor's alley here. My wife says she thinks that the Bible is true and that Jesus really lived. But I, but I know she doesn't have a relationship with him, and she doesn't know Jesus in her heart personally. I pray for her every day. I do Bible studies with her and our kids on the weekends. What else can I do to help her in her faith journey? Pastor, what do you say? Well, first of all, thank you for having a Bible study with her, and if she's involved in that, I think that within time, she's going to see that there is such a thing as a personal relationship with Jesus. But the problem that this uh, man uh, describes is very common. You'd be surprised at the number of people who go to church who believe that Jesus lived. They believe that he died. They might even believe that he is a savior. 
But that does not mean that they are saved. Amen. In salvation, there has to be a repentance from sin, a recognition of sinfulness, and then a trust in Jesus. And that's what makes the personal connection. Just last night, my wife was with a woman who uh, belongs to another, actually, Eastern religion. And this woman was saying that this this guru whom she follows helps her to be more loving, more kind, etc., etc. Well, isn't that wonderful? But that guru cannot take away sin. And you know, Carl, the older I get, and I'm probably a little bit older than you, though you might Couple catch up eventually. I will. <laughs> the fact is that if people do not recognize their sinfulness, they probably will not savingly believe on Jesus. It is conviction of sin that drives people to a savior. So what this man has to do is to continue to have these Bible studies, to continue to pray, but also to help her to see that her need is so great that only Jesus can solve her problem. Uh, one added thought here, Pastor, I did a deep dive on the power of the Holy Spirit a number of years ago, and it, it dawned on me, according to Jesus' words himself, Jesus never led anyone to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the regenerating power. He pulls down veils. He convicts the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. This gave me two thoughts. One is the pressure's off. We don't save our kids. We don't save our spouse. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But what what can we do, Pastor, to, to unleash? Uh, how am I even trying to capture this? We don't even unleash the power of the Spirit. But is there something we do to agree with the Spirit's work in a loved one's life? First of all, I want to underline what you have said. Today, we are talking to parents who think that they can convert their child if they get the child to pray the right prayer. Well, the fact is, they can't convert their child. We can't convert our children. Conversion is God's business. All that Amen. we can do is to be able to show them their need, show them the beauty of Jesus, and trust the Holy Spirit to do his work beyond that. Uh, we cannot coerce them into faith and get them to admit how sinful they are under pressure just so that we can have the, the feeling that they are converted. God has to do the conversion. You know, Carl, when I was teaching preaching years ago, I would take my students out to a cemetery and teach them to preach to the dead. Now, the color drained from their face and so forth, and they didn't, but I did. <laughs> I chose a tombstone and called for the person to rise from the dead. Thankfully, he didn't. But here's the point. What I was trying to do, and then afterwards, I would give an exposition of the fact that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And I said, students, when you preach on Sunday and they're unconverted there, remember you are preaching to dead people. And then what we are asking is that eyes be blind eyes be opened, deaf ears be healed, and the dead rise. I said, how many of those miracles can you do? They said, none. Then we got on our knees in the cemetery and dedicated ourselves to unrelenting 
dependence on God in the proclamation of the gospel because only God yes. can save. Amen. Wow. I got to tell you, this first half hour has been one for the record books. Hmm. This is gospel, Allie. Oh, yeah. This is, this is so Christocentric. This man-centered preaching has got to fade away. That could be part and parcel of what's led to our demise as a nation, Pastor, morally, is that we've had a fascination with the preacher rather than the Savior. Well, it's deeper than that. The fact is that we are told that God loves us, he accepts us as we are, etc., which gives the impression that even in our sin we are accepted by God. So if you were to ask me what is the one thing missing in so much preaching today, it is a lack of preaching about sin and helping people that their conscience might be stimulated and they are seen as helpless in the presence of God. Yeah, now, how many so sermons good. do you listen to where that comes through? Uh, you know, and, and the answer is often very few. I sometimes ask at pastor's conference, how many times have you preached an entire sermon on the doctrine of hell? Well, usually the answer is no. Now, at Moody Church, and I've said this before, that um, twice, I think, in my ministry there, I preached an entire sermon on hell. I could probably, I, I found it difficult to sleep the night before. Mm. I mean, but we're dealing here with a God who is revealed in Scripture, and we have to bow before him whether we like what he does or not. And as long as we tiptoe around the hard edges of the Christian faith and preach only the positive aspects, people will think that they really... It's nice to believe in Jesus. It's nice to have him as a savior, but they don't understand the depth of their sin and what Jesus did for him mm. on the cross. The reason that the cross is so terrible is because love, God's love is so great and hell is so terrifying. Yeah, Pastor, this is so good. Uh, we're going to have a question in a moment, but a quick comment. I was listening to Chuck Swindoll on Moody Radio, and he said the same admission. And by the way, this was a pretty recent sermon that he gave, um, said that I have, I have spared you messages on hell sometimes to your own peril. And I was moved wow. by that. Um, yeah. And it uh, has me choked up right now. Your spiritual pit stop to keep you going in the race. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. All right, we've got a question teed up for you, Pastor. Well, we've got someone who's asking, uh, where do we go right after we die? Well, like the thief on the cross, and by the way, don't use that story to put off the day of salvation for yourself. There's only one time in all the Bible, one story about a deathbed conversion, one story to give people hope, but at the same time, only one, so that we are not presumptuous. But that night, the thief was with Christ in paradise. And there are some people who write me letters who say, oh, we die, we have soul sleep. The soul sleeps until the day of resurrection. And what we should do is to take that statement and make it into a question. And Jesus says, today? You shall be with me in paradise. 
implying the answer is no. Well, actually, though, in the Greek text, it says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then in answer to the question, is there other evidence that we go immediately to be with Jesus? This is powerful. In the first chapter of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 23, you remember what the Apostle Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, but to be with you is necessary, and so forth. And then he says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Now, if Paul thought that his soul was going to sleep until the day of resurrection, what's the advantage of dying now? Mm. In other words, he's not going to be with Christ anyway for a long time. No, immediately from this life to the next. I was just with some friends, and there is a man who wrote books on prophecy who died recently, and apparently he died of a heart attack. But before he died, he said, I didn't know that heaven was this beautiful. Now, we shouldn't go by these kinds of experiences because sometimes near-death experiences are deceptive. But there's but years ago, when people died without anesthetic, they would already see the glories of heaven. Today, of course, that seldom happens wow. because people are, uh, you know, they have various drugs and so forth. So... In my book, One Minute After You Die, I tell the story of a girl who was on a couch in Ohio, in uh, Iowa, and the pastor came, and she was dying. She said, I want to go in, but Gramps goes ahead of me. And then a little later, I want to go in, but Mimi is going ahead of me. Well, then he came back later, and she had died. But he wondered, who's Gramps? Who's Mimi? He did investigation and discovered that Gramps was a friend of the family who lived in uh, in New York. Mimi had moved down south, but both of them died that Saturday morning. So heaven is oh as word. close to us as the <laughs> next breath. And we go from this life to the next, ushered into his presence, and uh, all on the basis of the merit of Jesus. That is a powerful story and a amazing work, by the way. One minute after you die is how many copies of that have gone out there, Pastor? About three quarters of a million. Wow. Yeah, it's touching a wow. lot of lives. Boom Crew, celebrate what God is doing in you. This is Carl and Crew Mornings. Uh, let's take this question right now. Yeah, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all one, but it also says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Are there actually two separate beings that will be sitting next to each other? You know what? Sometimes the best questions are the most obvious or simple ones where you go, okay, how, how would you explain that, Pastor Lutzer? Well, thank you, Allie, for saying that this is a simple question. Did you say that? <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe not the, point to, the point to be made is simply this, that there is only one spirit that pervades the whole universe. And the hub of God is everywhere. His circumference is nowhere. It pervades the entire uh, universe and beyond. One day our granddaughter asked the question, you know, is God bigger than the universe or does he just make himself fit in? <laughs> you know, the children, right. they ask those kinds of questions. Well, God is infinite and we can't get our minds around it. That being said, he is revealed 
in three different persons. That's the best word we can use. So it is not the Father who is crucified on the cross. It was Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus, the Son, did not have a permanent body until he was born in Bethlehem, and deity was joined to humanity forever. This man, because he is a a priest, the Bible says in Hebrews, he endures forever. That's why Jesus can sit on the right hand of God, because his body can be there, and uh, we shall see him, we shall see his nail prints, and we shall recognize him. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is just limited to his body. He is, of course, part of God, of very God. If you're finding it difficult to unpack all that, well, just rejoice in this. These issues have been discussed throughout 2,000 <laughs> years of church history, and all of us still find that it's a tremendous mystery. That's why Paul wrote, great is the mystery of godliness. God is manifest in the flesh. So that's the best we can do to try to understand the fact that there is one God but revealed in three persons. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was reading last night something, Pastor, uh, that was, um, it's a it's a historian that's pulled some of the best works out of the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, and he might say, well, were there good works? And he said, his statement was simply that, and he had some great citations, that what, what we received best from the Dark Ages and Middle Ages was the unknowableness of God and his infiniteness, and uh, we've sure, with our intellect, tried to minimize and make him manageable, but he is beyond compare. And that's hard. To, it's hard to even, it's, this is why the psalmist had a hard time describing who God is, Pastor, right? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, when you stop to think of it, even as I get older, God has much mystery. Yeah. I mean, if you ask the question of how can a sovereign God allow all this evil that we know that he could stop, and you begin to put all this into perspective, it's mind-boggling. The Bible has enough evidence for those who are open to belief. But for those who are dishonest doubters, who are closed to belief, it has enough mystery for them to turn away. So the question is, does the mystery draw us to God, or does the mystery drive us away from God? We have compelling evidence that Jesus spoke authoritatively and was who he claimed to be, and that's what we go on. And our faith is therefore solid, but at the same time, it's sure not without mystery. Yeah. Yeah, that's why even things like uh, open theism and, and discussions of the Godhead in that manner are really an attempt to try to grapple with some of the mystery of God. You've got questions, they've got answers. It's Ask the Experts Week with Carlin Crew Mornings. Pastor, I don't want to get in the weeds here, but this is not. There's a lot of people, I made the mention of open theism, which is a form of an understanding of God that I think is wrong, but it is an attempt to say that the way we explain uh, natural disasters and God not intervening is that God has set in motion this world and we're kind of on our own. Uh, Why is that dangerous? Well, it's not only dangerous, but of course it's untrue. It's not the God of the Bible. By the way, 
I've written a book entitled Pandemics, Plagues, and Natural Disasters, where I go into that question in detail. Okay. Look from Genesis to Revelation, and God takes full responsibility for natural disasters. You know, for example, the text that comes to mind, well, let's begin with uh, the plagues in Egypt. Who sent them? Right. <laughs> let's go to Jonah. You know, it says, and the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And the uh, same Elijah Jesus, the prophet, yeah. 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 And the same Jesus who said, peace be still, and the wind stopped, is the same Jesus who could have said, be still, and there wouldn't have been a tsunami. So ultimately, the question is, what is God telling us? And in my book, I list five or six lessons that God wants to teach us about natural disasters. But the idea of open theism says that. Uh, you know, God doesn't know the future. In fact, I quote someone, a name that would be recognized by many, but I won't mention his name, who said, when Katrina happened, God was the first one who wept. You know, he couldn't have predicted this. It, it just happened, and so he's there. What God is that? Not all-knowing. Not all-knowing. It is the God of the imagination. It yeah. is not the God of the Bible. Yeah, and it's, it, it's an attempt to try to clear up mysteries and to pin them down, but it doesn't work. Did Jesus descend into literal hell, Pastor Lutzer? I don't believe that he did. I think that the word Hades oftentimes does refer to the netherworld, so to speak. Oftentimes it just refers to the grave. And so, obviously, Jesus went to heaven because he was there to welcome the thief. Today you shall be with me in paradise. And there are theories that I sometimes hear about Jesus went into hell and proclaimed deliverance. This is based on a passage in First uh, Peter that is very confusing, that we'd have to have open Bibles to go through to understand. But... Um, Jesus ascended to the Father. As a matter of fact, the last words on the cross are, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus did descend into hell in the sense that he bore hell in the three hours on the cross. The first three hours he suffered under the hands of men. The last three hours in darkness, suffering under the hands of God, and compressed into that darkness was hell. But when he died, his spirit went to God. If it went to Hades, some kind of a hell, well, it sure didn't stay there long because Jesus, when he died, committed himself to the Father, and he was there to welcome the thief. Yeah, good, great answer. There is a distinction between eternal lake of fire and Sheol or Hades, for sure. Okay, Pastor, on to this one. Can a believer be demon-possessed? Well, you're absolutely right the way you asked the question before the break, and that is, is there a better word? Are there Christians who are harassed by Satan, oftentimes controlled by demonic spirits? Yes. The reason I don't like the word possession is because possession implies ownership. Mm -hmm. And what we must do is to recognize that... Um, uh, the de demons do not own any believer, so they do not possess them in that sense. Uh, 
But are there Christians who have to deal with demonic spirits? The answer is yes. The reason that distinction is important is that Christians have to understand that they are fighting this battle from the standpoint of victory. In other words, Jesus broke the power of Satan. Second, um, Colossians, Colossians chapter 2 says that when he died, he took all of our sins, nailed them to the cross. You know, in those days when somebody died, when they were crucified, their crimes were uh, above the cross. That's why Pilate wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And Jesus took all the sins, put them on a bulletin board, figuratively speaking, died for them. And it says he disarmed all principalities and powers. So the greatest thing that Christians need to understand is the thorough victory of Christ. So we fight these battles from the standpoint of his victory. And so, yes, there are Christians that are harassed, but let's not use the word possession. Yeah, I love uh, what we find in Ephesians. I've gone to this often, Pastor. I'd like you to make a quick comment because Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Isn't it interesting, guys, that anger is the issue here? And then he says this, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil in the New American Standard. And I believe in the NIV, it says foothold. But in the ESV, it says opportunity. I like, I don't know the original Greek word there, but I like the fact that it does not imply possession. But we are warned, aren't we, Pastor? We, we, we ought not be trifling with demonic forces. In fact, the Greek word is tapos. Yes, it, it is means tapos. don't give them a place. Yeah. And uh, that's, of course, very important. And anger oftentimes does give demons a place. And even when you see the murders that are uh, done oftentimes in such a rage, clearly those people have given the demon a place. And so don't let the sun go down on your wrath, but rather do not, and uh, thereby do not give Satan an opportunity, yeah. a topos, a foot in the door. Yeah, it's good stuff. When you don't know, who better to ask than an expert? You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. Dr. Erwin Lutzer with us today. What a wonderful friend of God and ours as well. Amen to that. Just I, thought I'd throw a little mustard on that. <laughs> Allie looks shocked. <laughs> I, I just caught me off guard there. Pastor Lutzer is always, I feel like he's a friend of the, of the city. True that. It's hard you know, to go somewhere where somebody hasn't been impacted by Pastor Lutzer. If there was a pastor to our city, he's right up there in the top handful that would be considered for that post. All right, let's get the question posed to him again. Hey, if God is all-knowing and knows what people need, why is it important to pray on behalf of others? Are we lobbying God, and can we change God's mind through prayer? Well, Allie, thank you for throwing three questions at me. <laughs> I knew that there were at least two. I didn't okay. know there were three. Should but we tackle I want one to at a time? Uh, read a passage of Scripture. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Then pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. And on and on it goes. So there you have Jesus acknowledging that the Father knows all things, 
But he doesn't say, because the Father knows all things and he knows how everything is going to turn out, don't pray. What he says is, the Father knows everything, therefore pray this way. And we ask him for things, the Lord's Prayer, of course. And we recognize that there is a connection, a symmetry between God's knowledge and the fact that we should pray. Remember this, the real purpose of prayer is not to change God's mind. I'll comment on that in a moment. The real person purpose of prayer is to change us. It is our acknowledgement of dependence. It is our acknowledgement of seeking his face. God has everything in control. He knows what's going to happen. But prayer is designed to change us, the transformation in worship and so forth. Now, can we change God's mind? Well, first of all, thank you, Allie, for asking such simple questions. (laughs) But um, can we change God's mind? From our standpoint, yes. In other words, God answers prayer. If you look at it from God's standpoint, of course not, because he knew all things, planned all things, and it's not as if he's saying, well, I was going to do this, but now you've convinced me, you've lobbied me to change my mind. But we must live with the tension of believing that God answers prayer, but at the same time recognizing that we aren't really changing his mind about everything, anything. In the, in the Old Testament, you know, it says that God regretted that he made man and so forth. That's, that's Exodus 32. in human terms. Yeah. We have to look at it from the divine standpoint where everything is under control. He's trying to help us to understand in human language his relationship with us. But at the same time, we come to a God who is not surprised a God whose purposes will be fulfilled, but we come in humility and we ask and we live with that tension. You know, Pastor, uh, then uh, explain from the book of the story of Jonah, where God saw that they had turned from their ways and he relented. That's how does let's use that as a proof text here. How would you explain that? Well, I would just say what I've hinted at before, namely that that's the way in which, from our standpoint, that's what happened. And therefore, it's presented that way in Scripture that we might understand that God does respond to repentance. God does respond to prayer. But it would be wrong to think that uh, God had to wait until that time, until we prayed, to know what he was going to do. Yeah. God knows all things, both actual and possible. Therefore, there are no surprises. There are no surprises. And we must see very clearly that he is in charge. But he does ask us. Let's take, for example, even Jeremiah. You know, he, he predicts that the uh, captivity is going to be 70 years. At the end of 70 years, God is speaking to Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, and they're crying up to God and saying, Oh, God, do something for Jerusalem. Well, whose idea was that? It was God's idea. They were echoing back to God, his will. And God says, as you do that, and as you humble yourself, you'll become a part of what I plan to do at the beginning, namely the 70 years. 
has come to an end. Carl, we can't unravel all of these mysteries because there is that synergism, that's a good word, between the eternal plan of God and we as human beings. What we must do is to bow before a God and recognize that prayer is really for us in that sense more than it is for him because guess what? He knows what he's going to do. And according to him, it's all going to go according to his plan. Love it. Pastor Lutzer here with us. Pastor, I got an interesting question, I hope. The kids call it wrecked you. Um, When you look at the scriptures, what most moves you about the character or the nature of God? Oh, there's no doubt. It is mystery. You know, when I think of God, and I think about him often, and I try to come to grips with his eternality, for example, the fact that he had no beginning, I can't get my mind around that. Now, I did write an article showing it's much more logical to believe that God uh, is the one who began all things and has existed from all eternity than that the cosmos existed from all eternity on its own. It's much more logical to believe in God. But still, at the same time, you're always confronted with the mystery of God. And as we wrestle with these questions, and of course the purpose of the Bible has to do with redemption, buying us out of the slave market of sin, giving us a new identity, we always recognize that, but we always are confronted with a God who challenges us, a God who we do not fully understand, but we love. And we love because he has implanted that love within our hearts, whom having not seen, you love. And so that, I think, is what comes through to me all the time. I wake up every morning and I say, God, today I want you to glorify yourself in my life at my expense. I don't know exactly what the day holds, but it's your day. And so as I read the word, I try to focus on God, his promises, his love, but also his mystery. Your shot of hope to make it through the day. It's Carl and Crew Mornings. Okay, uh, we've got a question here about uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And uh, there's actually someone here that makes an implication that somehow Pastor Lutzer is against the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for which I know nothing could be further from the truth. Let's let's talk about this, though, because it's... Uh, D.L. Moody himself that had an awareness of the power of the Holy Spirit. When does the Holy Spirit fill a believer? And Pastor Lutzer, what work of grace do we need to understand more and more each day, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life? You know, when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is always best to take the clearest passage and then to work out from that to the less clear ones. And, um, My mind goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether bond or free, and have been made to drink of one spirit. So I take the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be, we are baptized into Christ. And that baptism occurs for every single believer. 
Now, what we need to do is to distinguish that from the filling of the Spirit, which is what we need day by day. You know, D.L. Moody said, the reason I have to be filled with the Spirit so often is because I leak. (laughs) So uh, the fact is that the filling of the Spirit, before I preach, I always pray. I say, now, Father, Jesus went to the Father and said, I pour forth the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit by faith for this ministry. And that is available to every single believer. Everyone listening now can say, Lord, today I want to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit for my calling, no matter what that job is, no matter what the responsibilities are, I seek that. And that's what we need repeatedly. Moody and others had special experiences with God, and that is wonderful. And we thank God for those, and some of us have had those special experiences. But it's the day-by-day filling that enables us to walk in the Spirit. There A question about a specific uh, verse in Scripture, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, what does it mean to be born of the water and the Spirit? You know, Ali, there are all kinds of different interpretations of that, but I believe that when it says being born of water and of the Spirit, the word water doesn't refer to Christian baptism. That could have not even entered into the mind of Nicodemus, but rather it is another word for the Spirit. Unless you are born of water and of wind, that's what the word Spirit is in Greek, it is the word wind, you are born of water and wind. What would Nicodemus think of? Well, he'd think of Ezekiel, where it says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and where water in the Old Testament is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, unless you are born of water and wind, namely the Holy Spirit, you'll not enter into the kingdom of God. So it is a poetic way, well, actually more than a poetic way, of describing the work of the Holy Spirit. But water and wind refer to the Holy Spirit. Good word. Uh, Pastor, quick one here. Once saved, always saved, true or not? True. Understanding what saved means. I knew that was coming. Uh, I, I want you to explain that because I think sometimes it's that's foggy. Oh. Yeah. In other words, we actually covered this in a previous question. You know, we covered a lot of ground this morning, didn't we? Yes, we have. We have. (laughs) Yes. But when you're truly saved, you're given a new nature with new desires, a new desire to love God, to serve him. So we can't simply say, okay, once saved, always saved, because there are plenty of people who may think that they are saved, but they give no evidence of it. But for the truly saved, yes, uh, he who begins a good work in us leads us all the way to redemption, takes us all the way to heaven. Hey, this is Carl with Carl and Crew, and I'm so grateful that you listened to this showcast. Thank you mostly for being part of the Boom Crew. As we help you take your next step with Jesus, you're a huge encouragement to us. We'll be here again live every weekday morning from 5 to 9 a.m. Godspeed.